So masked Zorro is racing through the woods on his horse. And uh, I'm uh, dumbfounded because he's riding along. He needs another horse. He's pursued by the Spanish-Mexican guard, cavalry, whatever it is. They're pursuing him, these guards, running after him. He goes up against, he needs another horse, so he rides up against one, one of the other guards. He wrestles the reins from him. He knocks him off the horse. And now Zorro is, is going along at a gallop with two horses, he jumps up in this movie I'm watching. He jumps up and, and stands on the two horses with one foot on each saddle of the horse. And my jaw is dropped open because this is before CGI, right? So someone was actually doing this, right, in the movie. And, and he's galloping along through the woods. And then all of a sudden in the path, there's a branch sticking out that is just above the, uh, the horse's head, he's this big bow, and he's galloping up to this branch, and Zorro, on his horse, jumps up and over the branch and lands back on the horses. And, you know, the, the guards come along behind. They're not knocked off their horses, you know. But he jumped over the horse, landed on the horse, and I was so astonished that I just audibly, without, without thinking about it, I just audibly said, can he do that? Like, is that possible? And the answer, friends, of course, is it depends on the horses. <laughs> it depends on the horses. Well, this movie scene beautifully illustrates a critical lesson in church leadership. And uh, I'm telling it today, not only because it gives us this great lesson in church leadership, but also because it's culturally appropriate for what we're doing today. We are ordaining and installing Roman Gonzalez. And uh, this is a culturally appropriate or appropriating uh, way of, of bringing this to the fore. We're going we're gonna to talk about that, and we're going to use a passage from Scripture to really enter in what God is doing, what God is giving to us today. It's Ephesians 4, where we're going to read about what the Apostle Paul thinks of church leadership. Before we bring that uh, passage before us and read it, um, I just want to kind of give a little bit of an introduction, because it's a kind of difficult passage to immediately get. Uh, some people have trouble when, when we read it, like what, it causes some puzzlement. And one of the things to understand the psalm, uh, the, to, to understand the Ephesians passage, is to realize that the apostle is, is quoting a passage in the Old Testament, actually one of the psalms, Psalm 68. And it's really important to understand what's going on in the psalm in order to understand what Paul is saying to us about church leadership in Ephesians 4. So what we're going to do is actually read first the uh, introduction to the psalm to help us understand what's going on with the psalm. Psalm 68, it's, in, it's printed in your bulletin if you want to follow along. And then we're going to read the, the actual passage that Paul quotes from. Then we're going to read Paul's uh, passage. So let me invite up one of the officers of our church, Jeff Rosinski, to read for us. He's here. And uh, if you would stand with me, as if you're able to, as we hear the reading of God's word. Good morning. I will be reading from Psalm 68.1, verses 17 and 18, as well as Ephesians 4, verses 7 through 12, beginning with the psalm. 
God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. The chariots of God are twice ten thousand, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train, and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious. And now to Ephesians 4, 7 through 12. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, John. Please be seated. So I want you to be honest when you read this passage. Um, you know, what, what's your reaction to this, ask, this, this, this business about ascending and descending? I think most of us read that and we think, you know, there's some kind of point that the apostle's trying to make here, some kind of log- thing that he thinks is logical, like uh, whatever goes up has to come down, right? Or whatever goes down has to come up, something like that, right? Ascending, what does it mean? But he had to descend. And then we just move on and, get, and say, let's get to the part about apostles and prophets and uh, we don't think about it. But that actually is an important point for us to understand. If we're going to understand it, We have to understand, first of all, that he is quoting Psalm 68 there. But that doesn't doesn't solve it, right? Because we we read, and and even if, um, especially if you just lay it out like we did, Psalm 68 next to Ephesians 4 there, you see these differences. And it raises the question of whether maybe uh, Paul might be misquoting or misparaphrasing the psalm, right? You see those differences uh, between verse 8? In Ephesians 4 and Psalm 68, verse 18 there, if you're looking in your bulletin, you, you can see it, right? Is it you or is it he who's, who's being addressed? And the, the gifts, are they coming from a certain group of people or are they going to a certain group of people? And uh, really there, is it you receive or he gave? So um, what, what's going on there and what Paul is doing there? And Paul, whether he is... Uh, quoting a different rendition of this psalm, or whether he is paraphrasing it um, himself, what I want to show us is that he is beautifully capturing what's going on in the psalm. He's actually giving us the deep meaning of what's going on in Psalm 68. So for us to understand what's first Ephesians 4, we have to go back and understand Psalm 68. To understand Psalm 68, we have to think about war. Because this is a psalm about war. You can tell from verse 1, right? It's about the enemies being scattered. It's about chariots, right? So what went on in the ancient world with war? This is the important point. When a, when a, a certain city or a capital city would go to war, the king would get up off his throne and descend in order to go out and do battle. And then he would come back and he would ascend up to his throne, right? He had to descend. The king had to descend from his place of of honor 
and, and get out into the danger, and then he would come back. And what was great is when he won, because if, if, a, if a king or a conqueror commander was coming back, it was a big deal, and he had won, because he would be bringing and parading all of his plunder before the people. And it's, it's very difficult for us to understand. We're very far removed from war, where consequences really matter to us, you know, and so it's hard for us to understand. But they were not modest about winning a battle. If a, if a conqueror was coming back and he won, friends, everybody went out there. And all the people would come out from the, from the capital city. They would meet him. There would be this big procession. There would be a parade because he would be coming and he would be bringing all of his plunder that he had captured. You know, if you conquered, um, you know, a certain area, you would get that plunder. You would get these gold chalices and silver coins, and the king would be parading all that. There was no modesty. And everybody who would come out would be happy. They'd be coming out of the, the capital. There would be, if, if you had a stadium, like later in Rome, you come in, you'd go around the stadium. Um, but in any event, you would come out, have this big parade, and you were so happy. Why? Well, first of all, if you were in that kingdom, that meant you were not going to be oppressed, <laughs> at least for the near future. Your life was going to be pretty good. So people were very happy about that. But also because of the plunder. If you were a nobleman, you know, it was, you know, you might get one of those chalices because the king would maybe give gifts to his nobles in order to engender loyalty from his ruling class. So you might actually get some of that plunder. You were excited. But even if you weren't a nobleman, you went to this parade and you were shouting because even if you were just a peasant, an ordinary person in this kingdom, what you saw was money coming into your economy. And you knew that what was going to happen when money came in is that there would be building projects. There would be things going on. There would be employment. You could get a job. Your children were going to eat. All very good things. So people were not out there saying, okay, we, we won, let's you know, not make a big deal of it, let's be modest about it. No, they were out there and they were saying, we won, <laughs> yeah. They didn't, they didn't hold back, friends. This was like, yes, we won. That's what it was like. And that's what the psalmist is capturing here. The psalmist is saying, you know, it's when, when the Israelites go out to war, it's, it's as if God comes off of his throne and he comes down and fights at our head. And, and what they were trying to do is establish righteousness in the land, actually bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. And, he's, and, and so when they were succeeding, they were saying, God is with us and God has come off his throne and he goes down and he has fought for us. And we've won. See, what the psalmist is trying to do is instill this feeling in the, in the people so they could look and see what God has done and said, yes, he did it. God has triumphed. We win. That's what's going on in the psalm. So it's a military operation, right? You see um, in, in uh, verse 18, he's establishing the kingdom there. God has risen off his throne. He's come down. He's fought the fight. He's, he's come back. They get the plunder. Okay, that's the idea. So now we can understand why Paul, writing the letter to the Ephesians in the New Testament, thinks of this psalm. You see what he's doing? He's saying, hey, you know what? This is just what Jesus Christ did. This, is, this makes me think about the church and Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ 
rose from the dead and ascended to the throne of God. And it's like he won the real war against evil. He's not using, you know, swords and spears. It's a different kind of war, but it's, a, it's still God establishing his kingdom on earth. And it's, be, it's because he won. It's why Paul says, but, you know, if we saw him rise from the dead and ascend to heaven, what does that mean? It means first he came down off his throne. What does it mean? He ascended means he had to have descended first. So he's saying you don't get the, the resurrection and the ascension without the incarnation. So what Paul is trying to do is saying, you know what Christ, he's trying to get them to think what Christ is actually doing is this kind of holy war. It's a different kind of holy war. And he's already won it because he came down to the lower parts. I like the ESV translation here. The lower parts are the earth. The lower parts, which are the earth, he came down to do battle. Jesus Christ left his throne. He came down. He did battle. But the battle he did was on the cross where he defeated evil. And then he rose. It proved that he had defeated evil. And so he rose up. He ascended back to his throne. He turned around and he gave plunder to the church. And Paul is saying, that's just like this, this thing that happened with kings. That's just like what's going on in this psalm here. So that's why Paul's mind goes to the psalm and he's saying, this is what Jesus Christ is doing. He's won the holy war and he ascended in a very public way. And we, his subjects, are the beneficiaries of his spiritual plunder. You know why Paul is doing that? Paul is doing that to get us, to get, if you are in this kingdom of Christ, to to get you to say, yeah, he won. He won. We see that he ascended up into heaven and he won. He doesn't want you to hold back. He wants you to see what Christ has done, see what he gives to the church and say, yeah, he won. We win. Now, is that how you get up in the morning? That's what Paul's trying to encourage you to do. This is how you should get up in the morning. You should get up and you should be saying, yeah, he won. Yeah, I'm on the winning team. Right? Guys, uh, I guess we don't have war going on. So we do not feel as the closest thing would be when your sports team wins, right? Or your candidate gets elected. And you say, yeah, we won. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Soundman. Because <laughs> I really needed that in the sermon, you know. I was just, I didn't really have them here, so you saved me. All right. So, friends, let's get to the main point here. The main point is the plunder. Because remember, the king would have this procession and all, all the riches that he would get, he would bring back and he would give them to the people that was coming into the economy. Okay, in verses 11 to 12, we get the gifts. And this is a striking thing about the way that Paul is thinking, right? In verse 8, he says he gave gifts. And it doesn't matter really whether who he's talking about. This is why it doesn't matter with a psalm or he's saying he received gifts from people or he gave gifts to people. Because the king would get the gifts from the people he conquered. He'd give them to the people um, that he was, he was uh, uh, king over. And so it's giving and receiving going on, the same thing. It doesn't really matter. It's, this, it's all part of the same process, right? So then we get to verse 11, and we find out what the gifts are. 
And this is where translators struggle, seem to struggle a little, because um, it's, it's what the plunder is. And can you see with me in verse 11 what the plunder is? What the gifts are? The chief plunder, it's not things. It's not riches. It's not resources, not even a church building. What does Jesus Christ give to the church? What is the plunder? The plunder is people. The plunder are these certain church leaders. That's plunder that he's giving. The gifts are the people. He doesn't even say he gave the gift of apostleship or he gave the gift of prophecy. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say he gave you know, the resources so that people could prophesy or people could evangelize. No, he says, this is the gift, the evangelist, the prophet, the apostle. The gifts are the people. And that fits, friends, because the king, when he brought back his trail and he had, he, he had this train that he was going to give to his people, it wasn't just stuff. It was also the people of that other kingdom, right? He didn't just conquer the kingdom and take their stuff. The king would also take the people of that court. He'd say, you come and work in my court now. He took the best people that he could get, people who were going to enrich the kingdom. And so that's what Paul is, uh, is leading us to think here. The gifts are the people. So listen, if that means if you are in Christ, if Christ has captured your heart, you understand you are plunder. You are a prisoner of war. So it's the way Paul actually opens this chapter in, in the beginning of chapter 4, verse 1. He says, I, Paul, am a prisoner in the Lord. And you say, well, what does that mean, prisoner in the Lord? It means people say, well, he was maybe in prison when he wrote this letter. And that, that was probably true. He probably was writing this, one of, the, one of the prison epistles, they say. He wrote this from prison. But Paul means something more. He means something deeper. He says, you know, I'm a prisoner of Christ's war, of Christ's holy war. He has won me. I'm a prisoner. I'm his prisoner. So do you understand yourself that way? Do you understand that as a Christian, you are part of the plunder of Christ's war? He has won you back from the domain of darkness, you're a, prisoner, you're a prisoner of war. You're a plunder being brought back now, enslaved to the righteous king, enslaved to the Lord. Okay? That's, that's what makes Psalm 68 make sense here. Christ has won back a portion of humanity. He turns around and he gives these captives. These are spoils of war. And then, you know, as... Uh, as <laughs> As was read there, even the rebellious, it says in the psalm, right? Even among the rebellious. And some of you know what that is, right? Christ has won you into his kingdom. You didn't want to come into his kingdom. Some of you came in kicking and screaming, didn't you? You're like, I don't want to be a Christian. I'm not into this stuff. I don't want to. It didn't matter. God was like, I'm sorry. You are in. Some of you know just what I'm talking about. It was like he won you. Nothing really you could do about it in the end. So here he is even among the rebellious. And some of the precious plunder, the gold and the jewels, are the leaders in the church. That is what he's giving to the church. Some of the precious plunder, because it's tough. It's very hard to be a leader in the church. It claims the life of those who assume office uh, in the church. But the gifts are the people, 
And Christ is now giving to your community some of this plunder today. And that's why what you should be saying in your heart when you see Roman getting ordained, you should be saying, yes, he won. Christ won. And here's some of the plunder. That's what's going on today. Okay, so let's look at these gifts. The gift, the list here of these people, I would say you could divide it into two, two parts, uh, the first three and the last two. There are regional gifts in verse 11, and there are local gifts. Okay, there are gifts that um, uh, Christ gives that have an influence beyond the local level, and there are gifts that are local, which are the last two, which we see are shepherds and teachers. Right? Let me focus on those two for a moment. Um, you know, it is this verse and a verse from 1 Timothy 5 that gives rise to the Presbyterian view of elders. Some of you come from a different uh, tradition. You say, why do we have what we have? Why do we have the polity that we have in this church? It's because of this verse. Because that last group shepherds and teachers share the same article. You know, all of these in, in the Greek, these, these people, they all have an article in front of them. So it actually says the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists. But the last one has only one article, the last two. The, the shepherds and, te and teachers. And this is what we understand, also because Paul distinguishes in, in 1 Timothy 5, is that there's one office of elders and two types the shepherding elder, and the teacher. Okay? And we call those ruling elders and teaching elders. Okay? So what we're about today is kind of important in this season of Ironworks Church. We are asking you to nominate the first, and today we're actually going to be ordaining the second, the teaching kind of elder. And uh, when we ask you to nominate the shepherd ruling elders for us, Okay. We're asking you to look and see in the congregation, hey, is there somebody else in this church that, that Christ is giving as plunder in this war? Is there somebody else that we should be nominating because we're recognizing this man as someone Christ is giving to the church to lead? And you say, well, how do I do that? What do I do? Just go read 1 Timothy 3. Just go read Titus 1, you know? One of the best ways to find out whether someone you're thinking about should be an elder is to go and talk to an existing elder. Talk to one of the existing ruling elders, see what's the job like. Best way to do it. And then we're asking you to, to do that privately, to go to that uh, person privately and say, do you have uh, the time for this? Because you're looking for maturity, you're looking for time, you're looking for buy-in to the vision of the church. And if this person has those things, you want to ask them privately nominate them to us privately, uh, and then we um, do the training and evaluation, ask them to evaluate their lives, and then we make it public at the end. But that's one of the things we're asking you to do by the end of the year. So that's the kind of second one. And the first one, of course, we are going to uh, be ordaining in just a moment here. Um, but uh, the reason why I think of this passage when I think of Roman is because... There are gifts that God gives to the church that are regional in nature. They're not just local. And although Roman is being ordained here to serve here at Ironworks Church, um, he, is, he is part of, I believe, some of these regional gifting 
that, that God gives. Now, we don't, as, as uh, in, our, in our Presbyterian tradition, we don't believe that there are still apostles walking around or, and prophets. Um, we, we do understand, though, that the Holy Spirit continues to bless the church with regional leadership. And that means leaders that, that span cultures, especially in evangelism, that the cross-cultural um, element is so important. And that's what uh, Roman has uh, he already is a bridge. He already has done ministry cross-culturally and been able to be a bridge between things here in our culture and another very important uh, place in the world, of Central America. And so there's this regional gifting as well that we're getting when we get Roman into the work of the ministry that we're very, very excited about that will unfold, I think, um, as his career goes on um, as well. And and so this is a good opportunity for our church to become more cross-cultural you know, and be able to welcome people from different cultures and to be able to um, uh, help them feel at home. And this is something that I'm you know, particularly good at doing. Uh, I will put myself before you as an example. For this, we were making a place for Roman and we knew that he was Mexican so when he came in, first thing I did was take him to Chipotle's. <laughs> Being the culturally sensitive uh, man that I am, I thought, you know, we're going to make him feel at home. We put Fritos corn chips around the house, make sure that he, you know, could feel he wasn't too far from the homeland, you know, or as I tend to say these days, El Homelando, in my culturally sensitive way. When we sat down for entertainment, we said, let's make him, let's make Roman feel comfortable. So we watched a movie called El Nacho Libre. <laughs> so that he couldn't maybe feel like, you know, he wasn't far away. We gave him a room and we decorated it. We just put up a pinata, you know, and <laughs> put a bat in there if he, he wanted to feel Mexican, you know. I just put myself out here as, you know, someone you can learn from to become cross-cultural. Yeah, this is the kind of thing that you do. And you know what? You do this in conversation, too. You also make a point of including people in conversation. Like, so when you're sitting around the dinner table, you don't just think about stuff in your country. You think about the other person's country. And I, you know, put my head to this. So I was very... I made it a point to say, you know, Ramah, what do you think of drug lords? You know? <laughs> and uh, so what he had, you could do this actually without even calling attention to the person. You could say, who here has maybe ridden a donkey? You know, something like that. Okay, I'm, I'm having fun. But seriously, actually, it has been a, it has been a great joy. It has been a great joy to have Roman and to learn from him, to be able to be instructed by him in all things uh, Central American because he's had such ministry experience there. So I want you to understand what a privilege it is to be having uh, this man and to be bringing him into the ministry as well uh, for this broader role that's gonna come. This broader role that the Lord gives the church. All right, last thing here. Last thing about these gifts that I want to point out to us, verse 12, and I think you know this, right? I think you know this. 
right? You look closely at verse 12, okay? That's where we derive our expectations about church leaders and laity. And when I ask you this question, you know the answer, right? Who does the work of ministry? Who is it that does the work of ministry, what Paul's calling the work of ministry? Who is it? The church, the saints, right? You see that there? That's very important. And so we have this, uh, we have this word minister. It's a bit of a misnomer, right? Because it might mislead us. It's good to respect your clergy. And by the way, for those of you who expressed your appreciation for us um, last month, really appreciate it. Thank you very much for, for honoring us. We really do appreciate that. Um, but it can mislead us if we think that the ministers are the ones doing the work of ministry. They're not, according to this verse, right? It's not the ministers doing the work of ministry. It's the saints. According to this, the ministers are there to support those who are there overseeing, to spiritually further them for their exploits. And so, we can come back to that, that culturally sensitive illustration with which we opened the sermon. And this is really a charge for you, Roman, is to recognize this. In that picture, we're not Zorro. We're the horses. We're the horses, and that's what this verse is, is teaching us. We are the ones who are being steady. You want to know what ministry is? Ministry is maintaining a steadiness so that the saints can do their amazing feats on our backs to support them as the people do the ministry and the work of the ministry, as they do their death-defying feats that cause the world's jaw to drop. So, when they, so that they, because we are running steady under them, they are the ones who do works of faith. They are the ones who do works of forgiveness. They are the ones who do works of kindness. They have faith even in the midst of despairing circumstances, even when they're in situations where it just says, I do not know how this could possibly work out, and they still trust the Lord. Or when they forgive even in the midst of betrayal, or when they show kindness, even in the midst of, of meanness, even when people are unkind to them and they are kind. These are the things that make the world's mouth drop open, things that the, that the world looks at and says, just how can they do that? How can they do that? And the answer is, depends on the horses. Depends on whether the horses are putting them and supporting them up with the truth, and running steady enough so that they will be able to maintain a peace, a peace in, the, in the church, so that the horses are not diverging and causing a church split. So they're staying on the straight and narrow and running forward in the truth, but in a way that, that maintains unity and does not allow strife to divide. You want to know what ministry is about? It's about that. It's about running steady in a way that supports the church for them to do the amazing works that cause the world to look on in wonder. That is what you're being ordained to. And that is what you must take on. 
So that is what we're going to do. These gifts are these, this leader that are going to help bring us to unity and maturity in faith and practice.